0: In the United States, one out of three people are arrested at least once by age 23. Getting arrested is much more complicated than simply showing up, says Julio Briones in his new book, Surviving Arrest The Complete Guide, now available on Amazon. Julio is our guest today, and we're going to talk about surviving arrest crises and the criminal justice system. This is some intellectual musings. I'm Philip Primo. Welcome, everyone. This is Semi Intellectual Musings. I am Philip Primo. I'm very excited to offer you a new installment of Semi Intellectual Musings where we talk about the criminal justice system, how we can prepare for the curveballs that life throws us, personal crisis, from arrest to prison. To divorce, to senior care, and on the line we have an expert, or who I feel is an expert in the field, Julio Briones. He is the CEO and founder of Answerman Specialty Services. He is also the host of an Ounce of Prevention podcast. Julio, welcome to Semi Intellectual Musings.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: It is uh, the pleasure is online, Julio. Um I think we connected a little while ago through uh, some podcasting channels. I've been looking forward yeah. to uh, getting the chance to sit down with you.
1: I really appreciate this. I've heard other episodes of your show. It's fantastic. And I was actually kind of hoping to be able to be on here one day. And here we are. Here
0: we are. Um, so, for the listeners, uh, Julio, why don't you give us a little bit of background about who you are and what AnswerMan Specialty Services is?
1: I came up with AnswerMan Specialty Services as a company. And what we are is just in short, very vaguely, we're a personal crisis management company. So what I've done is I have taken my own personal life experience, having been in the military, having uh, served in the United States Army specifically, having been through prison, actually serving 10 years for robbery. So I've seen it all from maximum custody all the way down to community release programs. And I took this I took my volunteer service in drug rehab centers and working with a lot of people going through divorce and also many years of working in the senior care industry. And I combined all of it and created Answerman Specialty Services. And what we do is, from beginning to end, we help individuals and families get through whatever combination of issues they're dealing with. I gotta say, I am not the guy you call. When your kid just got a trespassing ticket, you know, for being in the park after sundown. I'm not the guy you call when you just come home and your husband or wife says, Hey, you know, we've been together, we've tried everything. I think we should amicably divorce. Usually I'm the person that gets called in when everything has hit the fan. Just you're going through a messy divorce. You got to figure out what to do with your folks because you're losing the house. Found out Sally's getting high and all of a sudden you get the phone call that Timmy got arrested. And all of this is going on at the same time and you're about to lose your mind. Best comparison I've ever gotten from a good friend of mine is they told me life coaches are great because they help you by guiding you. Put the pieces of your life very gently back in place but I am the guy that comes in with sledgehammer and duct tape. (laughs) That's
0: a great analogy, the sledgehammer and duct tape. So you've taken a little bit of your personal history, the military having experience in the criminal justice system, and you reach out to people who are going through trauma. Uh,
1: Crises is a better description. Uh, Trauma is more for after the fact. The, the, difference between like a regular problem and a crisis is the amount of time you have to respond to what's going on. Trauma really goes into your reaction after everything, the storm has passed.
0: So what are the sort of scenarios that you find yourself walking into? What's like a, kind of a spectrum of people going through crisis?
1: The most common calls that I get are usually very complicated situations where a person will be planning, possibly, to go through a divorce. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but some divorces are very complicated, and there's other issues involved in this. I have permission from some of my clients, as long as I don't mention their names, to go through their stories. Not too long ago, I would say about a year ago now, I had a client, and she was going through... Well, she was planning on getting a divorce because she found out that her husband was cheating on her. Well, when we sat down to talk, I was ready to tell her that this isn't really my specialty, you know, just go get a good divorce lawyer and take the guy to the cleaners. But as we were talking, it turns out that her eldest son knew about the affair and was being threatened by the husband. And as a result, had gone out and started hanging out with the wrong crowd and developed an opioid addiction. He actually was a full-blown heroin addict uh, by the time I got involved. Okay.
0: So, some compounding issues here.
1: Yeah. This was causing even more tension in the relationship, causing other issues with their other kids because they had a total of three. While we were making the decision and talking about it, it's it's a process, you know, I, I don't necessarily walk in and say, okay, hey, you're my client. You know, I I really want to make sure I'm a good fit because of the amount of involvement that I have with the potential. So, over the course of the few days, the kid ended up getting himself arrested. So now, we went from having a little bit of time to take care of stuff to being in a full-blown, multi-level crisis. So, we had to quickly act, get, get things put in place, bail hire an attorney, yep. we had to find a rehab center for this kid because, you know, it, it wasn't a very serious crime that he actually did, but he, because of the way things happened, he was charged with very serious crimes. So he had broken into someone's house so can steal some stuff to get high because they weren't giving him money for drugs. Well, he had a screwdriver in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Screwdriver in the pocket means you are now going from burglary to armed robbery. So it escalated very quickly. Long story short, we were able to post bail, get him out, get him into a drug rehab center, but it was down in Florida. Uh, I'm in New Jersey, so I had to drive him down there because the kid was terrified of flying, would not get on a plane. Drive him down there, deliver him to a drug rehab center, fly back, deal with everything with the lawyer, with the divorce with all the other issues going on, prep the family for the reality that this kid was probably going to prison. Yep. Fly back down to Florida, pick him up and drive him back home a couple of months later, managing all of the situations at once. So it's very intensive, very hands-on.
0: So when a family's situation is crumbling, Mm -hmm. you're sort of the proverbial rock in those situations. Yes. now, hearing you speak, and I've listened to your podcast, and you've said it a few times on your show, but for our listeners, people who think that, uh, you know, mandatory minimum sentences uh, or harsher sentences are what um, offenders need uh, probably won't find solace in your words. Mm, no your I think uh, if I can understand right treading the line between prisoner advocacy and personal support worker
1: yeah that, that that would be pretty accurate accurate way to describe it
0: so how does your podcast uh fit into the mix let's switch over to the show for a second
1: okay well my show is my my way to give back okay uh as you can imagine because of the amount of time and effort and sometimes resources that are involved it's not everyone can necessarily afford to hire me directly one on one, so people still need help they still need to understand what is a personal crisis they still need to understand what does it take to get through they still need to know you know what that they're going to be okay essentially see that that's that's really what it comes down to People yeah. need to know that there are solutions they're not the only ones going through this, and that's what I use the platform of my podcast store. I use it to get the word out, just to put out information. How to hire an attorney. The importance of gratitude. Mm. You know, the, how, what it takes to actually put to, put in place senior care. You know, I, I will occasionally even break down some celebrity arrests just because they're celebrities doesn't mean they're not going yep. through the same thing. Everyone else will. Yep. So what to know, what to be aware of, what to be prepared for and most importantly, how to get through.
0: Now, you say it on your show, I think, uh, probably in episode one or two, um, but when someone enters the criminal justice system, they've been arrested, they go to prison, that may or may not be, but most likely is, their own doing. Uh, they've gotten themselves into this problem, but it's not their family's doing. It's not their sons, not their daughters, probably not their wives, uncles, cousins, etc. Mm-hmm. So is your podcast also a, a vehicle for those people? Uh, to understand what their loved one is going through?
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm a big fan of taking responsibility for your actions. Okay? I, I think part of being an adult is that. And unfortunately, when, whether we took responsibility for our actions or we were forced to through the court system, we're not the only ones paying the price. There's a lot of collateral damage. And that comes in the sense of mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, kids and anyone else that they're close to. Part of the message of my show is so that they understand the realities of what's going through. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I do one or two episodes in my first season where I specifically talk about the importance of communication mm. and how crucial it is for the person inside the prison system to understand what the family's going through, but also so that the family has the peace of mind knowing what the inmate's going through. Yep. So this way the the communication becomes clearer and it becomes less bickering and helps keep the family together.
0: has experienced the criminal justice system or uh, has read about it uh, maybe, you know, through media knows that its ways in which it helps families uh, is quite minimal. In Canada, for example, uh, incarcerated women particularly uh, have a very hard time keeping their family together through visits or through distance. What are some of the, the the kind of things that you offer as advice for incarcerated people to help their families together or tread tread the storm, so to speak, once they're inside the criminal justice system?
1: Whenever I do my workshops and groups or work with somebody one on one, the minute I hear that there's kids involved, the very first thing I tell and it's the probably the number one advice, whether you're in the US or Canada, that I can give anyone. Make sure you have a parenting agreement in place before you go into the system. If you are out on bail, if you, I mean, we all know ourselves, we all know what we're doing in this world, and if you know that your behavior or your actions has even the slightest possibility of landing you in jail or in prison, put a parenting agreement, something in place, a parenting plan. Mm. This is especially important when in places like the Canadian system where things can be spread out or in the U.S. federal prison system where you can be in New Jersey today and next week be in Alaska. You have to make sure that there's something in writing that delineates the terms of visitation, of communication, how much contact are you allowed to have distance is a killer doesn't mean that you have to stop all letters Mm. phone calls some prisons or or prison systems even allow for telecommunication through the use of internet in special settings take advantage of it
0: but sometimes unfortunately ending the relationship is uh, is the best course of action yes uh, for those families so what happens in those situations
1: that's why it's so important that these agreements are in place before. See, most family courts in the US, and from my understanding in Canada, will allow parenting agreements and will allow visitation even to an incarcerated person. If the issue is that the parents don't get along, a third party can be designated, either a family member, a trusted friend, or even in some situations they will have supervised visits by social workers. Mm. They aren't going to be often, but they can be put in place for major family occasions. With the exception of abuse, if one of the parents are incarcerated for child abuse, for child sex crimes, something involving that can hurt the well-being of the child, with that being the only exception, Keeping the family together is of monumental importance. I have seen men successfully maintain relationships with their children for 20 years. Hmm. They they have regular visits. They have been divorced from their, their uh, significant other for all those years. But the arrangement was made and the effort was made and it kept the kids out of jail. Kept the kids out of bad situations and this is what we I believe as a society one of the many things we have failed to recognize and that's the importance of the family unit just because you're incarcerated is not an excuse to rip apart a family.
0: Over your many years of experience in the criminal justice system is this something that the courts recognize at all during uh, hearings or their sentencing or bail hearings for example?
1: Yes and no. It's a matter of presenting the situation to the courts in a timely manner. In most United States courts and in the federal system, there's a very tiny window from the moment of arrest till the arraignment and indictment, It's usually a couple of days. And from that time to the first status conferences, again, we're not looking at very big windows of time. You want to have the attorney make you as a defendant or whoever the client is, You want to make them human in the eyes of the court as quickly as possible. And that is one thing that many defense attorneys, especially public defenders, because they're so overworked, they fail to do. Only a very small percentage of attorneys actually take the time to do this. Show that there's a family. Show that there's an an effort going to be made to change. If it's a first offender and there's a drug history, There's you can petition the court to go to drug rehab while on bail Mm. or in and then have future status conferences. Is it possible? Yes. Does it happen often? No. Most times you are a number until the moment of your sentencing.
0: And in Canada, there are certain, um, mitigating factors uh, that are taken mm-hmm. into account during sentence hearings yes. everywhere do, do yeah. you feel that when we petition the court that e- your services are accepted uh, by the judge or the the person hearing the um the tribunal or do they get filtered through a defense attorney
1: they get filtered through a defense attorney uh i've i have very very limited direct contact with the court system uh, i i do prepare for my clients certain reports and get together a certain strategy and what i do is hand it to them or to their attorney and then it's up to the attorney if they even want to use it i've actually had attorneys refuse to use it
0: um that seems awkward to me but okay
1: well (laughs) not not as a matter of it not being done properly it's let me clarify that (laughs) (laughs) all right this is what tends to happen you're going through the criminal justice system you have you've been arrested you, if, let's say you're fortunate enough to make bail. you're out anywhere from you know um, eight months if you have a, a fast plea process all the way or if the courts are backed up, it, it could be as long as four or five years. all right um, in my particular case, it was almost two years before I had a resolution to my case. So hmm. we go through the process you you have your status conferences you have Uh, your evidentiary hearings, then you finally have your trial or your plea agreement where where you declare yourself guilty. Okay, so we get to that point. Typically, uh, from my understanding of the Canadian system, it's not too far off from the US system, you have about 45 days from resolution of case until there's a period of sentencing. Common practice is that during that time period is when the what I call a, a humanizing packet or some attorneys will actually call it the mitigation packet where that gets created. Alright, that's when they tell the family, write the letters to the judge. Let's get let's get work history. Let's get all of these things to try to make the defendant appear to be a person. Hmm. My theory, and I was taught this by an extremely talented prosecutor who who showed me the, the effort and the beneficial effect of doing this, if you create that same mitigation packet at the moment of arrest you are now, not, now you're presenting to the judge John Smith, you're not presenting them docket number 47359, okay? And that is the difference, but some attorneys are so set in their ways and so set in the, in the status quo, in the norm of waiting until sentencing, they will take the report that I'll prepare and wait until the moment of sentencing comes along, instead of using it as a tool to benefit their client in the beginning. Yeah, you know
0: it's interesting that you say that they have the report and they hold on to it. It's the same sort of situation that sometimes, unfortunately, happens with victim impact statements, um, where the prosecution or the defense will have these statements mm-hmm. uh, but uh, aren't presenting them uh, to the court uh, to uh, to hear um, until it's too late, and really they have zero effect. They're kind of like an ad hoc uh, sort of presentation, right? Correct. So we give sentencing now, we hear the victim impact statement, and that, that doesn't do justice is for anybody really that doesn't serve anybody's purpose
1: exactly and now please don't don't mistake and I don't want your listeners to mistake this in any way at all I am not one of these people that are going to say that sentencing is too harsh I'm not going to say that too many people are incarcerated I, I do believe that we live in a world where most people in the prison system are adults and we do have to pay the consequences for our actions now I do believe also that there are for every good attorney and for every good defense attorney for every honest judge, for every good quality honest prosecutor there's two of them that are lazy, yeah, and this is why we end up with disparity of sentences. This is why we end up with you know extreme and over the top sentences, yeah yeah you know, like the crimes I was personally convicted of, my original sentence was 39 years, and that was because essentially I had an attorney that I didn't know better at the time, but he was just lazy. He didn't really do much for me, and I had to fight that on appeals. Now, just to put things into perspective, the average sentence in the state of New Jersey for the crimes I was convicted of, and my co-defendants got this, was five years and seven years.
0: That's a big difference.
1: Huge. But again, not, not a, it's not a cry out for that the system was against me. It's that not every attorney, not everybody does, well, it goes like this in any aspect of life. <clears throat> not everyone does their job as thoroughly as other people.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, in Canada, as the uh, Jordan uh, decision has uh, informed us, uh, sometimes it's a question of where you are geographically and how much funding uh, those certain court systems are receiving to supply quality, you know, state defense attorneys or even prosecutors sometimes. This has led to uh, extenuating delays and charges have been stayed because of it. Before we take a break... Uh, On your podcast, you talk about a three to five year plan. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what that is and your thinking behind that?
1: I believe in being prepared. And I also believe that we we are in charge of our own destinies and we decide and we can create success in our own life. I, I actually recently put out a book called Redefining Success that walks you through the first 30 days of that first year of the three to five year plan. And, you know, when you have to set goals, and you have to work and live your life at your end result. So if I see myself working with disenfranchised youth in the capacity of a social worker, I know I will need a four-year degree to do this. I need to start living my life now based on that goal. I need to start looking at schools. I need to get myself educated. I need to start working with disenfranchised youth. Need to start preparing for for university, I have to start pre- preparing at a certain point to take the licensing exams, so on and so on and so on. And that is what my three to five year plan is about. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are, I mean, I, I went to prison for ten years for violent crime in the United States, probably one of the most unforgiving countries <laughs> for people with a criminal history. and After getting out of prison, I not only was able to get my life back together, but before opening my own business, I had an executive level job at a major national corporate company. This isn't something that was done by accident. I planned, I prepared, I did steps that I needed to take to get to where I wanted to be in life.
0: Your story and your message is one of inspiration, Julio. Thank you. Really, I've worked with a lot of people who have gone through the criminal justice system, And, um, you know, for listeners who are unacquainted, uh, Julio, you don't sound like, uh, quote-unquote, the average Joe that went through the system. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you sound like you've learned something and you want to pass that on, and that is inspirational to me.
1: Thank you. And that's exactly my intent. That is the whole purpose behind Answerman Specialty Services. Um, When we come back from break, I can, uh, I'll tell you. The one moment that convinced me that this is what I needed to do with my life.
0: Oh, that would be great. Before we do that, uh, where can folks find you? Uh, How can we get a hold of you? How can we listen to your podcast?
1: Well, all information on my company, you can take my courses, buy my book, listen to my podcast, and just learn about me on my website at llc.
0: Perfect. Stay with us. When we come back after this musical break, we're going to hear what convinced Julio to do what he's doing. And we're going to talk about life after incarceration. But first coming from Dayton, Ohio, the 1984 draft is a band who channels American rock sensibilities through a nineties tinted punk and indie lens. Listen to this song of theirs titled lately. Quiet
2: on a Sunday. Taking naps for two Baseball on the television
0: Welcome back, everyone. Uh, That was Lately by the 1984 draft from their album Make Good Choices. And I think the title of that album is appropriate for today's chat. We are with Julio Briones, who's talking about the criminal justice system, how one can prepare for it, how it affects our loved ones, and really how to make good choices. Um, Julio, you said that you had a story about what prompted you to do this.
1: Yeah, um, when, when I first was arrested and convicted, I was put into a prison. It's New Jersey State Prison in Trenton. It's one of the oldest prisons in the country that are still functioning. Through the LIFERS program there, they run this something similar to Scared Straight. I'm sure everybody's familiar with what that was. Yeah, where they take these groups of teenagers, troubled youth, and they show them real prison. People get loud. They yeah. put on a show. Yep. A lot of puffery and yelling. and doesn't work. It doesn't at all. Well, this is where my point comes in. So <clears throat> this was in 2004. And there was this one young kid that just, he was probably about 16, 17 years old at the time. And I'm just sitting there looking at him. I'm like, he's not paying attention. He thinks this is a joke. And he was sitting there smiling the whole time. Everything was going on. And he just struck me. I, I couldn't explain why at the time, but he just did. So <clears throat> fast forward a few years. I'm, you know, I've won my appeal. I've got my sentence down to 12 years, which means I would have to serve 10. And I'm sitting now in East Jersey State Prison, which is in Rahway, New Jersey. And I'm outside. I'm smoking a cigarette. This is back when I used to smoke because you know, it's kind of what you do in prison. <laughs> so yep. you, know, uh, you have nothing but time, so you smoke and work out. And I I was sitting there, and I started talking to this kid, and I'm like, you know, you look terribly familiar. So we start going through where we're from, things we've been through in life, and things like that. And a coincidence of all coincidences, it's the same kid from the Scared Straight program when I first was arrested, well, when I first got to prison. So we start talking, and he said something that was so profound to me, and it was in passing conversation. And now, mind you, this this kid, he was just... You, you knew he was destined for prison, okay? He, in prison, he was still strung out. We were just talking. And he says to me at this point, he's like, you know, I wish when I first got in trouble that somebody would have explained to me the reality of prison instead of putting me through that, you know, BS, expletive show of Scared Straight. yeah. If they would have just sat down and told me what this was all going to be really like and what it was going to do to my life, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you right now. Wow. I went back to my cell after your time was over, and because I had very recently gotten my sentence reduced, it was now getting closer to the time of my release. I was on the downside of my period of incarceration. And I just started thinking, like, what am I going to do? See, when you go from serving a 39-year sentence to all of a sudden seeing the possibility of release, I equate it to telling a cancer patient that they've got three months to live and all of a sudden they hit month four. You've prepared yourself mentally for this horrible end result and now you see that it didn't happen and you have to live life. So I started preparing and just sitting there, and I I really, it caused me tremendous amounts of anxiety. And then I had this conversation with this kid, and I started saying, wait, you know, I help guys all the time deal with this. I help them deal with adjusting to prison. I help people deal with their family issues outside. You know, if somebody would have held my hand, proverbially, and spoke, talked me, and walked me through all of this, I might not have made some of the mistakes in the legal system that I did and maybe my outcome would have been different. And that's when I started formulating the, the framework for what is today Answerman Specialty Services.
0: Wow. The, you know, it's those chance interactions, those really, uh, you know, I almost want to call it fate um, that have sometimes the most significant impact on our lives, especially when you're down in the dumps, you know, sitting in your cell and all of a sudden this kid out of nowhere really is there right you kind of have to pinch yourself
1: like was he really there and and you're right though like just the way the conversation flowed there was no possible way that you could have predicted something you couldn't i couldn't make up a conversation like that yeah it was just really just sitting there talking it was one of those things we were outside yard rang normally was only about two hours an incident happened in the prison we were out there for like four or five hours right so yeah we were just talking and talking and talking. Yeah. And ultimately that's what came about.
0: No, that's that that's an amazing story and I, you know I we can start to see a little bit why um some of your messaging is around gratitude for example mm-hmm. in moments like that, right? Um yeah, thank th- thanks for that. But eventually you did get out and eventually one who is incarcerated does see the light of day and does get to walk back on the sidewalk. Uh reentry yeah isn't always easy most of the time it's very complex and hard um re-entry is a topic uh, that you like to talk about uh that you hold dear yes so what is it about coming out of the criminal justice system um that you're seeing uh right now as being an issue for folks
1: the big thing that i find and it's i think it's just so and i'm probably going to get crucified on you know messages over this but the push for higher education in the prison system Mm. i think is so detrimental to guys re-entering society that it's causing more harm than good
0: okay take a step back explain yourself (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) because before i get crucified here now please do not mistake one thing for the other i am a huge proponent of education uh i myself i don't have a degree Okay, I, I just, I need to make that clear. Uh, I did attend college, I just never finished. Okay, now, why is that particularly important? Because when I was in the transition process, and I went to the halfway house, I was pushed to college. And again, nothing wrong with it, there's some people that benefit greatly from a degree, but when I left the halfway house program, and I had to come back to my now wife and, you know, stepdaughter, and. You know, I had had reality to face, and my reality was I needed to work, I have a family to support, and college is all fine and good. But it doesn't put food on the table. It doesn't put money in your pocket. And the reality is that while I am fortunate enough to have spent my time incarcerated educating myself, while I may not have a formal education, I also did not watch television while I was incarcerated. I spent my time reading and studying and preparing for what is to come. And this is part of why I don't sound like your average ex-con. Mm. I went to the halfway house. I went to college because that's what I was told to do. Right. I have about a year and a half worth. I have uh, very little I need to get my degree in. I do intend to go back, but that's a personal thing, not going against what I said. But while going through the system, here's the reality, and this is some of the scarier facts. Probably about 40% of the people incarcerated don't even have a high school diploma. I'm going to say probably about 10 to 15% are barely literate, if they're literate at all. Why are you pushing people in those circumstances to go and seek out higher education? You are per- you're setting them up for failure. Let me tell you what my venture in college when I should have been going to a trade school So what it got me was over 200 rejections to jobs. Because wow. of my criminal history, McDonald's turned me down. I mean, McDonald's is probably the easiest job in the world to get, and they told me no. So my, my concern with pushing people who in many cases don't have high school diplomas, in many cases are, not, are barely literate, If they're illiterate at all. Why are you pushing them to higher education to get jobs that are tough to get without a criminal history? And now you're adding in the extra complication of an employment limiter. You're throwing them out there to do this and you're pushing this higher education and you're not even preparing them with the tools that they'll need. You're not telling them how bonding works. You're not telling them about how employers can actually get tax benefits for hiring them. You're not doing anything proactively to prepare people to re-enter the workforce. So my suggestion and my thinking on this and what I've brought up, I sit on a labor committee for the state of New Jersey in, you know, for re and one of the things I'm always preaching about, and the, we they listen and there are some pilot programs out there that are thankfully in place. Let's give guys opportunities to go to jobs that are traditionally more offender friendly, that people can earn a good living. Let's go back to teaching the trades in prison. I, I'm not sure how it works in Canada, but most vocational training in the prison system in the U.S. has been eliminated. Because of budgets. It's uh,
0: the situation in Canada is very similar. Uh, Federally, they scrapped um, the farm program, Uh, the farm, the farm program offered vocational training uh, and also that the prisons had fresh uh, produce uh, that were grown by the prisoners. So this had a dual effect um, and was quite beneficial in that, um, you know, prisoners took accountability for growing their own food. Um, they could see results, they could set goals, they could have a sense of accomplishment, but then they could also learn some trades and get, uh, you know, uh, sort of certificate after. So you could be a plumber on the farm, you could drive a tractor, but those were life skills that you could apply to a job afterwards. That program has been scrapped. Provincially, it's always been a problem because of the short, shorter sentences. Um, so as in Canada anyway, and maybe this isn't the case in the U.S., but typically a shorter sentence means less services.
1: Yes. Well, that, that's typically what happens here too. You know, the, the thing is this. I'll, I'll tell you, there was a prison that I was in. Uh, it, it was Riverfront State Prison in Camden, New Jersey. When I got there, I was very excited because that prison still offered vocational fine plumbing. So they taught you the skills needed to do rough plumbing, and the fine plumbing. You know, the fine plumbing is the decorative stuff for the house, the stuff that really makes you money as a contractor. The requirement was to get your GED, and you had to take behavior program. Here's the problem with that. Number one, the behavior programming wait list was five years long. Number two, I had a high school diploma. I couldn't take a GED, so essentially I wasn't able to participate. I mean it was a blessing in disguise I was able to, as a result, get myself into the paralegal course, but on top of the other complication to this is, in the prison systems, and New Jersey is one of the states with more programs, there are other states where they literally do nothing but sit in a cell. It got so bad that they had, in order to justify giving indigent inmates the ability to buy basic staples such as soap and toothpaste they had to create a job in New Jersey called cell sanitation where you got a dollar a day it's about a dollar 10 a day so that 5 days a week so that you can clean your cell and that's what you did you were allowed out 1 hour once a week to sweep and mop your cell for 20 bucks a month explain to me where that is useful and then you're going to encourage on taxpayers' dimes, you know, on the back of a taxpayer, you're going to encourage these guys that don't do anything and don't really want to do much of anything and aren't even educated enough to move forward with it. And you want to now push that the same population goes to college. Put them in vocational school. Give them a trade. Give them the opportunity Give them pro- the opportunity to join a union after they've learned their skill. And that will stop recidivism. If I am a drug dealer and I am being able to go out into the street for about four hours a day and bring home anywhere from 500 to $3,000 in a night, and I can repeat this five days a week, why am I going to go and work for minimum wage at a McDonald's? Well, this is exactly the question,
0: right? Uh, no one would do that. No one would give up.
1: That kind of money to get zero in return. But if I put you in prison, and while you're in prison, I teach you carpentry or I teach you plumbing, and now you can get out, and in a relatively short amount of time, especially the better the economy gets, the higher the demand for skilled labor. So if I can stick you in prison for two to three years and put you to work as a plumber's apprentice, and you can come home... And You can get a job as a plumber or as a plumber's apprentice for 25 to $30 per hour. Is that going to replace the income in a much safer and productive way than going to a university just to come out? Look, I know people with bachelor's degrees that are making twelve to thirteen dollars an hour. Absolutely. Hey, yeah. So now compound that with a former drug dealer. A year, two years, three years in prison, that's enough of a sacrifice. It's a it's a fair trade for them to make, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars in a month. It's the cost of doing business as far as they're concerned. So while the concept of free economics is absolutely true that a drug dealer will make less than a McDonald's worker in the course of a lifetime. These short-term gains become much more tempting than the long-term benefit of a college degree. Now replace the college degree with skills like plumbing or carpentry or IT, networking, or a variety of other skills that that require manual labor that few people are willing to do pay very well. Extermination high pressure or high pressure and low pressure boiler operator. These are jobs that few people are willing to do, that pay very well, and that you have an entire population of people that will tell you. I'm gonna say about 70 percent of people in prison, men and women, will say, if I had another option I would take it, but this is all I know how to do. So let's focus on changing that. Let's teach them something useful and productive, not European history. Yep.
0: You know, on semi-intellectual musings, we are advocates uh, for higher education, but that doesn't mean that that is for everyone. And, you know, that is something that's a message that, uh, you know, I think is really important is that um, there are certain populations um, that, you know, higher education just isn't necessarily in their best interest. And that doesn't mean that they can't take an interest in the subjects or learn uh, about those things, but the devotion and the cost of pursuing, you know, a bachelor's, a master's, or even a PhD outweighs the benefit to that certain person. And in particular, uh, we can think of cultural differences that aren't taken into account when you have a blanket policy of pushing higher ed. So, in Canada, for example, we have um, an overpopulation of Aboriginal First Nation Métis offenders who, for them and mm. their geographical location, a bachelor's degree in English Lit isn't going to serve them any purpose or their family. Exactly. So in Canada, we've, you know, um, advocacy groups have been pushing for culturally sensitive skills training. Um what are you seeing uh, around your area? What are some of the labor unions doing? What, what is some of the advocacy work to try to change these systemic problems? Where is that going?
1: Well, there's, uh, I have to say, like here in New Jersey, um, just from the committee that I'm on, I see a lot of really, really good work happening. There are many programs out there that will take ex-offenders and they will teach them culinary skills they will actually teach them how to become chefs. They'll give them safe serve. They will give them, you know, for free or little cost. There are, there are schools, yep. like uh, one a school that a good friend of mine went to that he's now living in the Washington, D.C. area, he went through a program to learn networking computer networking you know he's he got his ccna certification you know the certified cisco network administrator and he's earning a decent living now programs like that are being pushed but it's not until after the fact many times the guys don't get sent to those programs or there's a waitlist to get into those programs because they're not doing enough i believe to prepare people for eventual release Unless someone has a life sentence, we have to understand that the reality is these people will be re-entering society. I did. Other people will too. Mm. Uh, the other reality of this is as much as I hate the amount of time I was away from society, I've also seen the that people who, sh- who serve three years or less have less desire to stay on the straight and narrow and because less effort is made to correct their behavior. You know, I think we need to turn the Department of Corrections back into corrections, not just punishment. Yes, solitary confinement, I'm sorry uh, as much as people say how awful it is, I spent some time in there myself, and it is awful, but it is a corrective tool that some people need it some people are such a danger to the population at large that they need to be in solitary. They need to be taken out of the equation for a while. You know, not for 20 years, but you know, for what, however long it takes to, to get them to understand that they have to play nice with others.
0: The movement, and we can talk a little bit about the politics of the criminal justice system, but there has been a general shift towards a focus on punishment over rehabilitation. In Canada, I don't see much movement back. Uh, there have been mm-hmm. slight kind of attempts to bring back the rehabilitative model even though politically and by law that is mm-hmm. what the system is supposed to do uh, do you see any of these attempts well, in the united states and you know the question the burning question that i have yeah. really is this private uh, incarceration system these private prisons oh um it's not in their best interest to provide rehabilitative services no it's so not. where are we heading in that
1: direction uh, do you think well, I do have to make a correction, I, I'm not sure about the Canadian system, but the the US system switched in the late 70s, like I believe if I'm not mistaken it was 1979, they completely switched from a rehabilitative system to a punitive system. All right, And I'm gonna say safe bet, Canadian system is pretty similar to that, so what does that essentially mean? It means that while politicians talk a good game, the letter of the law, Is still for punitive not not for rehabilitative services now the the other fact is you're talking about the prison the privatized prison system is a multi-billion dollar industry it's not changing it it's just not going to happen you have too many people too many special interest groups making too much money and there is there is no desire whatsoever to change that now in the US a lot of state prisons are still state-run, so they, they're, they I believe, run a little bit more efficiently, but you know, uh, the trend is sadly moving more towards the short-term savings, even though it's a longer-term cost uh, associated with privatized prisons. We we have too many people in prison, we have very little effort to change the ways, and um, you know, with without getting into a political discussion, the reality is we had a former president release and commute a lot of sentences and if you look at the statistics a large majority of them ended up right back in prison mm. in a very short amount of time and that's because again I, I do not blame the president over that the former president I do not blame anything other than it was p- well thought out but pro- improperly executed yeah, yeah there was yeah. nothing done to prepare these people to come back to society but this is an ongoing problem yeah as I said you know I've Probably mentioned it a few times here now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You know,
0: we can talk about the systemic problems. So the systemic problems being um, rooted in, you know, the reason why we have the penal system or the criminal justice system and its kind of history and all that kind of stuff. But there's mm-hmm. also the more informal sort of side to re-entry as well. I'm thinking particularly about employers who don't want to hire someone who has done time, mm-hmm. um, particular fields in which it's just a, a no that, uh, you well, know, it, it is a total barrier to entry. What, what sort of things do you see?
1: I disagree with that. Okay. Here's, here's the problem if you're a child molester, don't go apply for a job at a daycare. Okay. Sure. That's true. Sure. It's just common sense, you would think. But this is what tends to happen. You will have somebody, let's take, let's take someone like me. One of my charges was robbery and carjacking. Okay? Mm-hmm. Why would I go work at a parking lot? Why would I go apply there? They're not going to give me a job because I have a history of car theft. So right. if I have, if I was a, let's say, a banker who stole from my bank, Why would I come out of prison and expect another bank to give me a job? Sure. You know, and this is where the problem comes in. When people people are going to prison and are not being taught proper ways to search for jobs. When I finally did get a job is because I took the time to stop. I actually literally stopped searching for a couple of months, and I learned what I needed to learn to find a job. Most employers do not know about the tax benefits that are associated with... Uh, hiring an ex, ex-offender. ex Most employers mm-hmm. do not know that there is skill sets and hidden gems of guys coming out. A guy who could sell another human being poison <laughs> yeah. on a regular basis yeah. and have this person come back and asking for more, I would give that person a shot as a salesman. You yeah. know, Why couldn't you sell yeah. a pool if you could sell that nonsense? And This is where the big disconnect is. We need as a society to one, again, prepare these guys coming out to understand that they do have skills that can transfer into the workforce, even though they're not as obvious as they would think. You don't put drug dealer on your resume, but you do put Hmm. interpersonal communications. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I was an
0: employment counselor. I know know. all those tricks. Uh, (laughs) They are important. As how we frame our life to
1: others, uh, how we tell our life story
0: to others is
1: important. Exactly. And now on the employer side, I think that communities and local governments need to do a better job of informing the employers of the benefits. If we can take the time out to send a letter threatening an employer that if they don't purchase this $25 OSHA regulation poster... And keep it where people are visible we are going to find them for lack of proper (laughs) you know being properly prepared for their employees why can we not stuff a letter in the mail with and stamp Labor Department or something on it that says hey these are the benefits of hiring uh, hard to place employees
0: there are a lot of good ideas and a lot of good solutions to the current, I'm going to Mm -hmm. call it crisis of incarceration. Um, I think uh, we can both agree that we need politicians ear on the matter. Absolutely. I want to uh, leave uh, the listener with uh, the idea that Julio is doing that. (laughs) He's doing his part. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, Julio, thank you so much uh for coming on uh to talk to us about this um i want everyone to know where they can find you again before we before we wrap up
1: well thank you again for having me on and if you would like to find out a little bit more about me i am on facebook under Answerman specialty services uh my twitter handle is julio crisis manager and my website is www. Answerman Specialty Services LLC.com. I know it's a mouthful.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, now, uh, looking at um, announcement prevention, you've uh, wrapped up the season. Um, mm-hmm. What do you have in store for us for next season? What's, what's going to be well, new? What's, what's in the pipes?
1: Uh, I plan on getting more into case analysis. I want to actually take stories in the news and break them down so that. Mm. People going through similar situations will have a better understanding of what to do if they find themselves there. And I also plan on peppering in uh, some interviews here and there. Maybe I have a few lawyers and other people that are in the criminal justice field that could give insight on job search skills, on Hmm. how to hire an attorney, on... You know just a variety of different topics reentry counselors things of that nature my next season I expect to start airing in October
0: in October that sounds great looking forward to it you know before we got on the line today I re-listened to a few of those episodes um, I absolutely love your episode on fear I think you've you captured the essence of fear for uh, not just uh, you know a family or, or a person who's going through the criminal justice system but for anyone who, who is faced with a decision faced with uh doing something in life fear cripples us um but i think in you know it was a short episode 15 16 17 minutes something like that you captured mm-hmm. it and it was great loved it yeah so yes thank you for coming on i hope i hope we're going to be able to do this again in some capacity that would be great
1: absolutely um i would love to love to come back and chat with you again sometime in the future and possibly uh bring you on my show and maybe we can talk about some of your past experience in the criminal justice system as well oh boy
0: the stories (laughs) yeah the stories Uh,
1: definitely uh, share some interesting ones i'm sure (laughs)
0: yeah yeah especially with your story about running into someone that you met in a completely different setting Mm -hmm. uh again oh i have a couple stories about running into past clients like that it's Hmm. uh yeah (laughs) yeah it's (laughs) too uh (laughs) Yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. because (laughs) That's another two-hour conversation. (laughs) Thank you so much. I hope to chat with you soon. We are going to leave you today uh, with another tune from Dayton, Ohio's The 1984 Draft. This one is off of their album, Make Good Choices, and the track is called Honest.
2: lines of my face just prove it's a young man's game the gray in my beard keeps track of the faster lived years the stains of my teeth keep count of the years that I have lost but your face. keeps an old man from putting it down Just just being honest just being honest just being honest just being honest It wasn't for you I don't know if I'd be here. I-
0: back to your first ever pop culture check-in with paul paul how are you doing what do you have for us today
3: i'm doing good just got off work but today i'm going to be talking about my love of horror films my long-standing love and sometimes hate relationship Mm. with horror films as a whole
0: horror films nice
3: but yeah i grew up watching horror films i probably started watching them at way too young of an age and i've always watched the genre closely i've seen it go through its trends that was the trend I kind of hated of the found footage trend that Blair Witch kicked off in 1999. And there were so many other movies that followed that that trend, like Wreck, uh, Paranormal Activities, which I was never a fan of. Yeah. Then there was the torture porn genre kicked off by Saw, yeah. which I hated even more, if that was possible. <laughs>
0: now, for all our listeners, the found footage genre is like uh, the Blair Witch Project, right?
3: Exactly. They're movies based on a pretense of some people find this old video camera and this video camera, this handheld shaky cam has captured footage of this haunting, this supernatural activity, or even this uh, non-supernatural string of murders.
0: Kind of ridiculous. Made on a shoestring budget. And yet they earn tons of money at the box office. Uh, But, uh, you know, through the 90s through the 2000s you've made the point elsewhere that um horror kind of sucked
3: it did and i can kind of see why those uh found footage films got so popular as you said they were made on the shoestring budget blair witch project i think had a budget of fifty-five thousand dollars, and it made a a bunch of money in theaters and the same with the paranormal activity movies
0: now it has been said though that there is a revival of horror do you agree with that
3: i would definitely agree with that looking at the list of movies since I'd probably say since 2012 through 2013, you had The Witch in 2013, you had The Babadook, you had It Follows, you had all these great indie films, and it even followed its way into some larger budget movies like uh, It last year that was
0: both critically and commercially acclaimed. And uh, that's the It that's based on the, the novel It.
3: Right. That is correct. It's based on uh, Stephen King's source material, It.
0: So what's happening in the horror genre today for you to say that there's a revival of it that is coming back that we should pay attention to the genre?
3: In particular, it's this, this year and last year. Last year, we had uh, Jordan Peele's Fantastic Get Out, which was actually nominated for a Best Picture Oscar, which is completely unheard of in the whole the world. And it also made mm. a lot of money. It only had like a $10 million budget and it made... Again, a lot of money. I cannot remember the box office numbers. I'm sorry. Uh,
0: and there was also Happy Death Day.
3: Happy Death Day was one of the, wasn't one was a great example of the genre because it it doesn't tie into the renaissance of which I'm speaking, but it was an enjoyable enough flick. It had a great premise. It, the lead had enough chemistry to carry it. And it was a fr- pretty enjoyable film.
0: The only reason why I know that one is because it beat out Blade Runner 2049 in the box office. Um and uh, that really surprised me.
3: What's interesting about that movie compared to Blade Runner is part of the reason it beat off, beat out Blade Runner and a lot of the horror movies are kind of winning at the box office is they're being able to pull in this younger audience. Mm. I think the average age of the person that saw uh, Happy Death Day was around 25. Wow.
0: So with a younger audience, has, have the films shifted focus a little bit or is it still the stereotypical uh, plot line of the horror movies from the 80s that we all remember?
3: Well, that's one, another reason, I think, for the horror renaissance we've seen here lately. They've just been, frankly, better movies. Like, you did have the great horror movies of the 80s, like the Halloween, the the Friday the 13th, and the Nightmare on Elm Street. But after that, you kind of had um, a ghost town for a while. In these mm. past few years, you've gotten to see some fantastic character-driven films that are a lot more than just wondering if a character survived. These movies give the characters stories. These movies give the characters arcs, which are always just better to watch.
0: When you say characters and story arcs, it reminds me of The Sixth Sense.
3: That's actually that's actually a fantastic example. That is a great example of what I'm talking about. The fact that you get to see uh, Bruce Willis's journey, you get to take that with him. But even in some modern movies, I'm talking about like The Babadook, I don't know if you've so that when you get to see the story of a woman dealing with grief and you realize that this monster that's fe- focused on the movie so much is purely symbolic.
0: Interesting. So it's not only about Hunter and hunted anymore.
3: Exa- exactly. You see this woman's journey, how she learns to deal with grief, because spo- I kind of hate to spoil this movie for some people. But as you learn throughout the movie, the the monster is just a manifestation of the woman's own grief. And you get to see how she learns to deal with her grief.
0: Uh, and I guess another comparison maybe
3: is to The Silence of the Lambs that came out in the, in the 90s? I don't know. The Silence of the Lambs is a weird example to me. Because personally, I don't consider it horror. I, I know the, the Oscar did, and I know, um, know a lot of other people do. But I've just never looked at it as a horror film. Just because the horror is so minimal.
0: Yeah, it wasn't really that scary of a movie, was it?
3: It wasn't. Other than the scene at the end with Buffalo Bill, I can't really think of any other so-called scares in the movie.
0: Well, maybe that's a testament to there was no better horror movie in the 90s that could be nominated.
3: Yeah, there wasn't a lot of great horror movies in the 90s. You had the interview with a vampire, which, again, I'm straining to call horror.
0: Yeah, that wasn't very scary either. So are the new ones, like, knock you off your seat? You want to run out of the, the cinema crying? kind of scary?
3: Well, this the one I'm going to focus on in this example is a movie called Hereditary that came out earlier this year. Okay. It was one of the few movies in my life that have ever actually given me nightmares oh, wow. and woke me up in the middle of the night. The reason I think that is is it's so much more than a movie. It goes into that uh, theme I was talking about a minute ago, the way horror movies have gotten better and they tackle other issues. The film Hereditary did a good job tackling family drama and family trauma and how it uh, impacts us as we grow and as we age. And I think Hereditary did a good job tackling that. And because of some of my own personal issues, it affected me a lot more than it may have affected you. And that's what I like about the modern horror films. It's, it's focused more on telling a good story as opposed to just going for those cheap jump scares.
0: Speaking of cheap jump scares, uh, one of the stereotypical things in horror movies is like, women are dumb women are prey and men are beasts who can defend them uh is this being recreated in the new uh genre or the some of the movies anyway that fall into the revival of horror
3: well it definitely definitely is if you think about get out from even from last year you had the woman who was the monster who did use her feminine wiles i guess you would say to prey on the lead character and take it take advantage of them so it kind of turned that trope on its head. And then you had movies like The Witch, which, which focuses on the uh, Thomas and played by the fantastic Anna T- Taylor-Joy, who kind of focuses on the woman's place in a patriarchal society.
0: So before wrapping up, Paul, uh, what else is it about the horror revival that w- we should look forward to?
3: These last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of trailer, a lot of buzz for a film called Suspiria. It's an Italian horror film from the 1970s as being remade. I think that's going to be a movie to watch later this year. It has the fantastic Tilda Swinton, an actress who I think can do no wrong in it. It has Dakota Johnson. I think it's going to be a great film, and I think people should make sure to keep an eye out for that one.
0: And what, what what's that one called again?
3: Uh, Suspiria.
0: Suspiria. Great. Anything else we should look forward to in this horror genre?
3: Well, I just hope we continue to get these great horror films that resonate with a more wide audience sounds great
0: uh thank you so much for stopping in paul uh where can listeners find you
3: well at the moment i'm just at twitter.com slash paul that's the best place to reach me if anyone else would like me have me on their show just talk to have me talk about whatever they want me to talk about just reach me on twitter send me a dm and i'll get back with you
0: and we're going to check in with you in a few weeks for another pop culture check-in uh thanks for stopping by paul thank you If you enjoyed today's show, let us know on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore B-O-D on Facebook at the SimPod or send us an email, simintellectual at gmail.com and we'll bring you a new episode again very soon. Take care.